This will be the last message I preach in our introduction to the book of 1 Thessalonians before we open up the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're still not arriving at the point that Paul was at when he actually wrote the letter, but I, I, think, that, I think that what we have covered will suffice. What we've looked at so far um, is it's somewhat of a... I don't have my clicker thing. Just a Oh, it's not here either. You want me to go get it? No, that's all right. Luann, could I have you help me with the slides this morning? So far, what we have been doing is looking at the book of... Beginning to look at the book of 1 Thessalonians as an example for ministry because of all of the letters that Paul writes, and he tells us what the church is about and what it entails, the book of 1 Thessalonians is the most practical. It is the most clear. It is the most direct. And it is helpful in preparing to look at this letter to understand the circumstances that Paul was going through and his relationship with this church before he wrote the letter. And so as a result of that, what we've been doing is working our way through the book of Acts. And we've followed Paul's second missionary journey as he's made his way up through modern-day Turkey and navigated his way through the leadership of the Holy Spirit to arrive in Europe, a new frontier for ministry, somewhere we wouldn't have expected the Apostle Paul to go, not only because it wasn't in his heart's desire, but it was where he was being directed. And as he gets there, he works his way down the major trade routes. He goes through a city called Philippi. He goes through a city called Thessalonica. And what is marvelous almost breathtaking, what almost makes us just wonder how could we harness the power of God-driven ministry like the Apostle Paul so that we could have such effectiveness. Because when he arrived in the city of Thessalonica, he was only there, some commentators say, for less than a month. I think a more reasonable uh, kind of depiction in the timeline was maybe two months, maybe three months, but a very short time. And it's after writing this letter to this church, he, he gives them so much honor. They're one of the most mature churches that he planted. I mean, when we look at things side by side and we compare the church in Philippi, or especially the church in Corinth, to the church in Thessalonica, what happened in those two months is breathtaking. A community of believers came together. They covenanted together to live their life together, to have mutual fellowship, to do all of these things. But Paul's ran out. And it's almost as if Paul has to be ran out of Thessalonica in order for them to truly be successful. In order for them to realize that leaders have to step up. In order for them to realize that they have to leave room at the table for new converts to come and sit with them. Paul experiences failure after he leaves. He goes through the city of Berea. He gets ran out of Berea by the same people that ran him out in Thessalonica. He arrives in Athens, and he gets a little bit excited. This is where we left off last week. In the city of Athens, where Paul begins to preach, he goes, as is his custom, to the synagogues, he goes out into the streets and he preaches God's word. He engages with people in conversation and dialogue. 
And they say, we'd like to hear more about this. Compared to the reception that he received in Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea when he was ran out by a bunch of riffraff, he received a welcome. He received a warm greeting in Athens. Nevertheless, the results of his preaching didn't have much of a consequence. There wasn't a major church There's no New Testament letter called the Letter to the Athenians. There wasn't a lot of organization that took shape. So today we get to look at what Paul actually preached. His actual message. And we get to consider what it means when we wait for a response after presenting the gospel. Turn with me then to Acts chapter 17, where we will begin reading in verse 22, all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 34. As I read out loud, I pray your Bible would be open in front of you so that you can follow along with me, so that you can know that what I'm telling you is the truth. Before we do that, though, let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Your word that has been given to us, that has been preserved throughout history, that has been protected and delivered to us for such a time as this. Father, I pray that your word would not be viewed simply as a historical artifact, but that as we turn to it, we would recognize that it is a book like no other. It is an inspired book, breathed out by your will given to us by inspiration that every word has meaning and significance. Help us to take this truth to heart as we seek your wisdom to open the eyes of our heart that we might behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And 
Of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. When we look at Paul's journey, just real fast to refresh you, He's moved off the main training route and he's arrived in Athens. We discussed this a little bit last week, but just to bring to your memories what we discussed, Athens was a cultural hotspot. It was formerly a powerhouse for the, in, its, in its glory days under the Greek leadership, but we're under Roman leadership now. It's lost some of its political influence, but what remains are the colleges. I mean, this is a intellectual powerhouse. This is where people would go to get learned. This is where people would go to discuss different ideas and different perspectives. And this is also where art would have taken place. It seems that uh, as society increases in their appreciation of intellect, art also appreciates. And we get wonderful things like music and portraits and all of these wonderful, fascinating things that we get to appreciate. So that would have been the city of Athens. But it was, uh, even despite being an artistic centerpiece, it was also a place, um, and there's a picture of Athens if you want to see it on the next slide. Even though it was this kind of hot spot of society, it was also a place of religious confusion where all of the idols from the Greek empire and the empires before that and stretching back into time existed, all of these things seemed to commingle. Not unlike our society today, where tolerance has been promoted to the point where we are being told that we need to accept every perspective. What is fortunate for Paul's arrival is that when he meets these intellectuals, they do not dismiss him. They hear him preaching and they say, you know, I'm not sure I can get behind everything that you're saying, but I would like to hear more. And so we have this image of Paul taken up on Mars Hill um, to the Areopagus, as it's called. This place where the intellectuals would have gathered and heard. Uh, you can kind of imagine watching TED Talks if you've ever watched a TED Talk, if you've ever endured a TED Talk. Some of them are pretty entertaining. But you can imagine them gathering that they would be stimulated intellectually to hear these different things. And Paul begins to preach to them. He begins to preach to them addressing a religious people. Now, sometimes we read this, and and this is a familiar portion of Scripture, which makes it that much more difficult to study because we have to evaluate the things that we've heard in the past and whether or not they're true. Or, you know, we have to look at this kind of with a new set of eyes. We read this, and because it's so familiar, one of the things that we see is Paul's immediate approach to the people that he's talking to. It almost seems like he changes methods. Instead of jumping straight into who Jesus is, he starts at the beginning, the book of Genesis. And he begins his message by saying in verse 
Verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are a very religious people. And we read this, and I think we're so used to looking at it in this way. We have in our mind a picture of what the people of Athens looked like. Could I ask you to entertain one possible way that we might look at this? This message applies to the backslidden church. Because I see that they are a very religious people. Let's look at what Paul has to say to a very religious people. The first thing he says is that this God that created everything cannot be discovered in buildings. The people of Athens sought to glorify their gods with temples that they built that they would give them a dwelling place among them. This is a, a human practice that has existed all the way back to the Assyrians, all the way back uh, to the Akkadians even, if we can stretch our minds back. So I'm, I'm talking 2000 B.C., way back there, folks, that we would have to build temples. If you can think about the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis chapter 11, the, the idea here is that the ziggurats that were being built by the Akkadians was so that God could come down and dwell among them. Now, this idea has existed because we all know that there's a God. There's this acknowledgement inside of every person that there is something bigger than us, that there is something holy that has created us. And the Athenians go out and they are doing the same things from Greek culture. They're building these temples and they're trying to discover God. Oh, but a religious people... Seek to find God in buildings. But not just that, they want to look at what can be done with their human hands. They want to look at what can be done in service. This is what Paul says next. Not only have you observed Him in buildings, but you want to serve Him. You want to look at what you can do. Because here's the flaw that all of human civilization has faced from the beginning of time. Even though everything that could be known about God has been given to us plainly and can be seen through nature, man deceives himself into thinking he's more important than he actually is, more valuable than he actually is, more special than he actually is. The real God doesn't need you to serve Him. The God who created heaven and earth from nothing is not dependent on faithful service. The God who created everything does not need someone standing in an altar to be glorified. He is glorified because He is God. He is glorified because He created heaven and earth. And you are a footnote in His story. God doesn't need our service. It is a privilege that we get to serve Him. When we have the right perspective of what God has done for us, when we realize that our service to Him does not draw us closer to Him, does not make Him happier with us, does not please Him anymore, it is simply a privilege that we get to participate in His divine work. When we live our lives like that, we move away from a Greek way of thinking about God as some guy in the sky or an eye with a plan, and we get to see the true majesty of the one true God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't serve Him. Christians should serve Him. I think it's a core element of our attitude. And when we come to church, we should have an attitude of service. Only because we recognize that our life is not our own. 
Not so that we can be seen. Not so that we can do or, or be honored or, or so that we can, in some way, oh, and God forbid, that we would think we somehow atone for our sins by being faithful in service. There's nothing you can do to cover up your sins. The people in Athens sought to seek God, to honor God, to serve God with buildings, with their hands. But look at what he says next. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord being heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Sometimes, when we're not trying to please God with buildings or acts of service, we try to please God with our positions. God created all men and women equal. Our positions are not what glorifies God. Many Christians, I think, work for position so that they can some way be venerated or honored in their service to God. This is an error. This is a grievous sin that causes God to weep. He speaks of it when writing to the Israelites in the book of Malachi. If we do not recognize that we owe God everything and can give Him nothing, our worship will always fall short. The problem that arises when we worship God with a focus on our position is that it introduces one of the most lovely elements of human society called prejudice. It causes us to look down on people who are different than us, that have backgrounds different than us. I think in the same way the Athenians would have been guilty of this because they had a particular cultural class that congregated in Athens. Do you think they would have entertained the riffraff the same way that Paul did when he preached in the marketplace? I don't think that they would have. Would they have saved room in the Areopagus for the single mother? I don't think that they would have. Of course, that's somewhat speculation, but I'm piecing together why was it necessary that Paul would bring all of these things up? He brings up the core foundation that God created everything, that from this, God has a plan in everything, and there's nothing that we can do. And then he says that we're all created equal. Moving beyond that, he tells us that there is no prejudice with God and that we should be grateful because even though all of humanity has been seeking to discover ways of drawing near to God since the beginning of time, it's not as hard as they make it. God is, in fact, very near to us. Look at the middle of verse 27. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. 
What a promise. God is near to us that we might be able to draw close to Him. What stands in the way? Is it buildings? Is it service? Is it position? I think that's what Paul was saying to the Athenians. Do you know what stands between you and God? Everything you've placed before Him. God is not far from you. He's all present. He's not moved away from you. He's right there with you. He dwells among you. Set those things aside and you'll be able to draw near God. John Stott said that... Oh. John Stott said that this view of the world is very different from the way that the Epicureans had emphasized their, their view of the world. They, they had, the people of Athens had, had this kind of perspective that everything just existed by random chance. And the Stoics had just kind of accepted this pantheistic, all these gods and everyone else. All people must move beyond their personal opinions to an understanding of God that only comes from what he has told us about himself. The danger of being raised in church your entire life is that times when you were growing up, people had to speak to you like children. You had to hear simple truisms that didn't navigate the nuance. The nuance of what it means that God can both be just and loving that he can seek peace and wage war. God's attributes are harmonious if we allow ourselves to remember that he is a personable God and not just some entity. God is very near us. God is very near us. I think it's interesting, Paul's quotes in verse 28, the first thing he says, in him we have lived. And you see that in your Bible, and you might think that this is a quotation coming from the Old Testament, but it's not. Neither is the second one, for we are indeed his offspring. That didn't come from the Old Testament. These are nowhere in scriptures. You know what Paul's quoting? He's quoting song lyrics, y'all. These are poems that were written in 600 B.C. by the Greeks. He's quoting their intellectuals so that they can see that these things have been developed. You know what I find so interesting as I listen to songs and things that are coming out today? Some of them really hit the nail on the head in terms of what truth is. Now, I'm not saying they all do that. Some of them miss the mark so far that I would even call them satanic. But but that's a totally different story, isn't it? Some of them really get it. Do you know why people get it? People who aren't even Christians, people who even masquerade as Christians, do you know why they can understand some spiritual truth? Because God wants us to understand. He wants us to grow beyond what we don't know. He wants us to grow near Him. The problem is, on the next slide, what we'll find is we're able to grow near to God. We can know God, but the first step is we have to get out of our own way. We have to get out of our own way. Setting aside and being critical. And this is tough, you all. It's tough to recognize there's an idol in my life or I'm a gossip or I am undermining um, 
the love that Jesus has put in this world, it's tough to acknowledge the truth about our character. But if we don't acknowledge it, we'll never move past it. If we don't speak truth, we'll never live truth. Admitting that we are sinners, fallen, and that we have a need for God and that we cannot do anything outside or beyond or without God is hard work. We have to get out of the way. If we've made an idol of our service, maybe we need to step back. Maybe we need to focus on just spending time in God's presence. If we've made an idol of a building, maybe we need to move out. I mean, idolatry is a big deal, right? Drastic sin calls for drastic measures, does it not? You can't repent a little bit at a time. You repent or you don't. Repent means turn around, 180. God is near to us, but we have to get out of our own way. We are His offspring. By that, we have a responsibility to know Him. We're created in His image. It means that we have some responsibility to know Him. Second, we won't be able to know God if we don't realize and recognize that there is a need for growth in our lives. If we think that there's nothing else that we have left to learn, if we consider for one moment that the doctrines of the church or what the Bible teaches us, that there are some elements of it we can remain ignorant to, oh, we'll never know God living in such a, with such a state. Not only are we on our own way, but we don't even realize that we need to grow. And you're not going to grow on accident. Third, we need to recognize that what we think about God matters. What we think about God matters. I truly believe, I'm convinced, that most of the sin, the trespass, that takes place that damages relationships in this world would be solved if people simply thought, I will have to answer to God for everything that I do someday. At the very least, it would cause us to give second thought to the things that we should give second thought to. God is personal. He's not just an eye in the sky. He is a personal God that desires a personal relationship with His creation. He is present. He has not moved away from us or abandoned us, but He is present in everything. He is purposeful. He doesn't allow things to happen by mistake. He doesn't bring people together by accident. He doesn't draw people near by mistake. He is purposeful in everything that he does. God is powerful. He doesn't get undermined. I mean, you might think for a moment that circumstances in this world are up against you, and, and we like to joke about how Satan's winning the battle right now. But listen, friends, when God's in the fight, He doesn't lose. He's powerful. He doesn't lose. He accomplishes His purposes. Here's the Tozer quote I really wanted to share with you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. This is the most important thing for our growth is to simply recognize that what we think about when we think of God 
is the most telling thing about who we are as a person. If you make God little, you might be able to get away with doing things your way. When you make God big, you submit to Him even when you don't want to. You depend on Him even when you think you're strong enough. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. After presenting to the Athenians this picture of the God that created everything, the God that is bigger than they have ever possibly imagined, verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. When I was younger, I heard the phrase that ignorance is bliss. Man, those were the happiest days of my life. Have I put you to sleep already? I thought this was a short sermon. Did you guys hear me? When I was younger, I heard that ignorance is bliss, and those were the happiest days of my life. You'll get it later. Oh, it's true. I used to think that all I had to do was be enough to prove myself. All I had to do was put in the work. All I had to do was make sure that I wasn't making mistakes. Even as a young pastor, I thought the most important thing I could do was dedicate myself to nothing but study that I could make sure that everything that I taught was accurate or at least well-balanced if I wasn't sure. That it was provoking and engaging and alluring. Those were the happiest days of my life. Those were good days. Because then I found out that it doesn't matter how much you know how respected you are in your association, how many positions or titles you hold. If people don't feel like you love them, they won't listen to a thing you say. I said something last week that came across much, much harsher than I had intended. And I think part of the problem is We've been going through a sermon series that advocates change. I want to say I'm sorry. I've said that there is change that is needed, but I've not told you what that change is. I've allowed you to feel afraid. And I think that that is maybe being a better preacher than a pastor. Starting today, I would like to change that. I do see some things that need to change. Tonight, as we meet and continue to look at what it means to be the church, I also intend to lay out all my cards. I don't mean to hold anything back from you all. Honestly, I'm so naive, I operate under the delusion that if you had any concerns about something that I was saying, that you would simply ask me about them. Maybe I need to grow up and realize that sin infects us more than we ever realized. 
Paul doesn't receive the response that he should have after preaching the resurrection. He preaches about Christ, he preaches about this judgment that is, that is coming, and the entire impotence of everything that he has to say is that there is a day of judgment, that Christ will stand as judge. And as soon as he mentions the resurrection, he gets cut off. In verse 32, now when they, speaking of the Athenians, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear of you about this again later. The thing that you need to know about the Epicureans and the Stoics is that their perspective of the world and of man was that there are basically two elements at work in all of us. There is the mind that is kind of associated with the spirit, and by the way, I'll warn you, a lot of Christians still think in these terms, and I'll just hint at this fact. This is based off of Greek theology, not Christian theology. Their view of the world was that there was the mind and the spirit and that this could be made pure through discipline, whatever it was, or through pleasure if you were the Epicureans. And then there was the fleshly part of the body, which was inherently evil. So for them, any mention of the word uh, resurrection of the dead was unfathomable. They, they had no eye concept of a glorified body. There was no way that a glorified body could be anything good because it's made up of flesh. And what they did as soon as they heard this, as soon as they heard a thought that challenged their tradition, they cut Paul's sermon off at the knees. You know how we cut sermons off at the knees or really how we cut the Word of God off at the knees when we're studying it? This is that next slide. People hear and they get hurt. This is the problem with religion. When people hear things that they don't like and they get hurt, they just turn their ears off, they stop listening, they turn their brains off, they stop thinking. They thought of this substance as soon as they heard resurrection, they were out. And the problem is, they were probably provoked by their idolatrous way of living. So they heard Paul condemning the way that they were living. They felt bad. They got hurt. And so they felt isolated. That's that next point. We hear and we feel isolated. They didn't like the idea of a resurrected body. And because they didn't like it, they couldn't get behind these other things that Paul had said, even though he showed them that their own wise men, their own poets, had already acknowledged that God was the creator of everything. We cut the sermon off at the knees when we hear things and allow ourselves to feel judged. A good pastor doesn't target people from the pulpit. Sometimes it seems like it does, but a good pastor doesn't target people from the pulpit. If it seems like he does, it may be the Spirit. And if you don't believe me, I will give you countless illustrations of times that I've preached a message and people have come up to me and said, Brother Derek, that was so good, it really touched my heart. And then I've asked follow-up questions, which I've learned not to do. And I say, well, what part really got to your heart? And then they say something that had nothing to do with the sermon I just preached. You know, God can work however He decides to work. 
I don't tell them that that had nothing to do with the sermon that I preached. I just go, man, way to go, God. Sometimes we hear things and we feel judged. If you read your Bible regularly, you'll get used to this feeling because there is no book like the Bible that makes you feel judged. Jesus' half-brother James speaks of the Bible as if it were a mirror, revealing to us what we actually look like. If you spend enough time in the Bible, not only do you get used to this feeling, but you begin to realize that it's actually good that you feel it so long as you respond to it. Paul didn't get the reaction that I think he deserved from his message. But then again, I'm biased. I like the Apostle Paul. My tradition's built off of his. I want us just to realize that it's dangerous to judge the content of a message by the magnitude of the response. The reason the gospel did not take root there probably lay more in the attitude of the Athenians themselves than in Paul's approach or what he said. The reason the gospel was able to take root in Thessalonica was because there were hearts that were already primed for it. The reason the gospel didn't take root in Athens is because they already knew everything they needed to know. We cut the word of God off at the knees when we place what we believe or are comfortable with above the authority of Scripture. Unless we move past personal opinions, we'll never draw near to God. And ultimately, just consider one thing. In response to this awkward and uncomfortable feeling of feeling like we've been judged, one day we will all be judged. And there is only one judge whose decrees will matter. There is only one judge whose opinion of us will count, regardless of what we are able to make other people think of us. God knows the intentions of our heart. He knows the deceptiveness of our mind. And we will speak an answer for every idle word spoken. Christians must realize that they do not serve, they do not live to please their friends or to be well liked, even by their church. We serve an audience of one. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would do as you have done so many times before and speak where I have been silent. Father, I pray that the sermon would not end this morning, but that as we reflect on your word, that it would pierce our heart and make us new creations in you. Father, I pray that not a day would go by that we would not be more conformed to the image of your Son. Help us as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Sing number one.